Welcome to Pencils Down, a Finalis podcast. This is a show for listeners wanting to learn more about the ins and outs of the private securities brokerage landscape. Each episode will feature insightful conversations with the world's leading investment bankers, placement agents, capital providers, startup CEOs, and more. And with that, let's get into the show. All right, Sam Kelly, thank you so much for joining us here on the Pencils Down podcast. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. No, the pleasure is all ours. I usually like to start by asking our guests to share a little bit about their backgrounds and their eventual path into investment banking. Would love to learn what that journey was like from your perspective. Definitely. Um, You know, it wasn't linear at all. So when I think back... (laughs) Some zigs and zags? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So when I think back... uh, getting into undergrad and thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, didn't have a ton of direction. I knew I didn't want to go into government like my parents, and uh, I knew I wanted to make some good amount of money. So it's really, really shallow starting off, right? And um, I had read about Reginald F. Lewis. So I went to Virginia State University, same school Reginald F. Lewis went to, and he is kind of kind of like a, almost a godfather to, to Black people in private equity and venture capital because he's one of the early people that were successful back in the 80s where it was a ton of different challenges. Um, So I knew I wanted to get somewhere close to what he was doing, which was essentially just acquisitions. He came, uh, he started as an attorney. So I thought that's the route I wanted to go to, but just learning more about the business, quickly realized I could get closer to deals as a banker. Mm. And that's how I started my progression. So I read his book, realized I I could, I thought I could do it. (laughs) Not sure if I could, but that's what led me to Merrill Lynch and B of A. Um, there I was an advisor. Uh, so much more personal finance, really completely different ball game. But what was unique about there is we had a lot of access to a lot of private equity, private placement deals that we could put in our, our clients' portfolio. Hmm. And um, it's a lot easier call cold calling as a young 20-something with some ideas around new investments as a, instead of, you know, let me manage your entire life savings fresh and advisory with a 60-40 portfolio, especially at a time when everybody's making money. So long story short, uh, I did well, and but what I did well on was alternatives. So I did a lot of alternatives business, a lot of private placements as an advisor. And um, that relationship bared fruit, and I was really close to the family office, and uh, they wanted to incubate an investment bank in-house. So essentially, learn top to bottom what happens, um, get their proprietary deal flow in-house, and um, do the deals that way. This was a great opportunity for me. So I joined with a few other bankers. And uh, long story short, I ultimately knew what I wanted in a firm long term. Probably be a lot easier for me to build than go out and try to find. You know, I'm not a super, you know, I'm not one of those guys like a super big proponent of everybody should be entrepreneurs, wake up at four in the morning, drink black coffee kind of guys, you know. So I was I was never like hell bent on being an entrepreneur, but I was hell bent on controlling client process and working with smart people that I felt aligned with how I wanted to do business. So I thought that would be easier for me to start Solomon Gideon. And that's ultimately what what, what brought us here. It's so interesting because it's fascinating to study and learn about the different elements that people are looking to solve for in their careers that ultimately lead them to doing something entrepreneurial. Right. And when I connect that you know, to my own journey to starting Finalis, it had a lot less to do about what we do on a daily basis and a lot more to do with things I was looking to solve for functionally in my life. Right? Um, and what really stood out in what you were saying was 
this whole notion of controlling the client experience. And I wonder if you just share a little bit more about kind of what that means to you, what you saw at places like B of A, Merrill Lynch, um, where maybe you thought, okay, maybe there's a way I can do this better in the context of Solomon Gideon. For sure. And that's a good point. So, you know, the, the thing about being at a big firm, other the pros are usually the cons. So they're pretty much send off a, a document and it comes back signed. You know, you can have an idea about something. There's usually resources that you can mine through to get the answer you're looking for. But on the opposite side of that, at that size and scale, it's not a ton of opportunity for you to own the entire process. So you send a client somewhere else and maybe there is an advisor that's a lot bigger than you are at the time. So compared to what he's done, it's a small case for you. But for you, early in your career, it's everything, you know, and then especially if you're like myself, where I feel like my clients and I develop a really strong rapport. So even outside of monetary value of the deal or the opportunity, all of my opportunities are big opportunities for me because that's just kind of how I was raised. My name's on it. So the egg is on my face if anything happens, even if I didn't do it. So that was a lot of one, learn more about. So just start to finish how we get the structure and deals, how we get the place and clients and certain uh, opportunities, how we manage the opportunity. A lot of that stuff is almost taken off of your plate. And um, it's sometimes good for scale, but I don't think it's great for really learning the business in depth. And that's what I wanted to do. And so that was a, a big thing for me. And then going forward, how I continue to grow our practices, you know, nothing we do is really proprietary. So, so what we really harp on is the client experience and how they feel going through a deal, how they feel the first time we talk, how they feel the last time we talk. And that really is how we feed our business, just really those client relationships that come back to us. So I can't afford to do it wrong. Right. And it does seem to me that, well, certainly Solomon Gideon's approach isn't to try to be all things to all people, no, but rather to go deep into certain industries. And so share a little bit about kind of that, the biotech tech focus that Solomon Gideon applies and how is that focus informed by your prior experiences leading up to this point? Definitely. So when, we, when we're looking at sectors that we thought we could be dominant in, um, I, I really wanted to start in areas that I felt, one, were passionate for me. So um, when we look at healthcare, I think our healthcare system, there's a lot of room for all the way from medical devices, delivery of medications, pharmaceutical development, the, the entire thing. Another thing I would love to control the client experience there. So I looked at healthcare, so that made it attractive for me on a passion side. And when I think about doing the deals, what's unique about healthcare is that usually the investors in healthcare deals are people that spent their careers in healthcare. So they're surgeons, ex-healthcare executives, people that have really climbed the ladder there. And that helps me because they understand opportunities really well. And second off, I think it puts us on the same side of the table. You probably experienced like when you're in sales, sometimes it feels like almost adversarial or you're trying to push something and they're pushing back. Right. Typically when we find people that are used to certain type of deals and they know a space, they don't really worry about somebody getting over them because they're really the expert. You know, they, there's, even though I know a deal really well, they, they know their space really well. So that was unique about healthcare on both sides. So that's really where we, we, uh, we grinded our teeth. And then just on the tech side, when we looked at opportunities, I think climate tech and renewable energy is uh, another passion piece of ours. So I think we need to treat people better on the healthcare side. And I think we need to treat our planet better on the, the climate tech and, and renewable energy side. A lot of people we're working with, even still now, are kind of on the, the first frontier of what this will ultimately be when it's climate tech, renewable energy, ESG, all the things. 
it's uh, becoming more relevant. We can't ignore it anymore. So the people that have been in the space for 10, 15 years, founders, uh, you know, they're typically extremely passionate about it and they know a lot of, about the space. And there's so much more room for scale because so many of us are still learning about the space. So those are the areas where I felt like we could do really well on a triple bottom line thing. We'll do really yeah. well financially. Our investors will do well financially, and we'll be really proud of the projects we did. So that's that's kind of how we we formed our thesis and the type of companies we wanted to work. And how has that played out for you from a business development perspective? What is the the approach um, that you and Solomon Gideon applies to cultivating relationships with the types of clients that that you might like to take on? For sure. So you know we're extremely fortunate that I think we have done really well with our relationships and our relationships, introducing us to other people in the market. You know, the pro and the con of COVID for us, you know, it wasn't the greatest time to start an investment bank in the midst of so much financial turmoil, but we were able to connect with people a lot more. I think there was a time where a lot of, everybody paused, but there was a lull when the big banks were still trying to figure out how they were moving forward. And, you know, us was four, four people at the time, so it wasn't a, a, a ton of uh, going around we had to do. So once we all kind of locked in after the initial panic wears off, you know, we're, we're deal guys. So let's let's go do deals. So we were in front of people shaking hands almost when nobody was. You know, New York was a ghost town. <laughs> I could drive down the street, no traffic. And a lot of the investors had time and a lot of the founders had time to talk. So, I mean, I remember I emailed a deal and a, a guy said, you mind just grabbing coffee and we go through it in person. Never happened before, never happened since. But that just talked about how, you know, how different it was. So yeah. we really mind that. And I think we were top of mind for a lot of people because of that. Otherwise, it could have gone a thousand other places. So that worked really well. And then just how we go about prospecting. It's a tad bit proprietary. I'm sure other people do it, but we're really targeted on how we find strategic partners for deals. And um, the short of it is we leverage deals that have already been done style. And we do a ton of the research and development side, especially in the areas we do a lot of business. Christian, my partner, he might text me two in the morning because he saw a deal that looks similar to something we'd like to do. And uh, he'll let me know who did it, how what they did, what he thinks they did well. And we'll kind of reach out to the banks and even the investors and learn more about it. So I think that keeps us on the forefront. I know this is long-winded, but that's kind of how we go about business development on the business side and the, the investor side. Awesome. Yeah. And I have to ask, since you mentioned it, one interesting observation here is that Finalis has been around about as long as Solomon Gideon has been around yeah. three years. And one of the things that, that we both experienced was launching and scaling a company in a COVID context. Right. Would love to hear what that, you know, you shared a little bit about that, but would love to hear more about what that experience was like beyond just the leap of faith choosing to launch your own investment banking boutique it takes it to a whole other level yeah. when you're trying to to do that in a fully remote context in an industry by the way mm -hmm. that thrives off of human connection exactly and so curious to hear your perspective on that journey yeah definitely so i mean to be as blunt as possible i mean i was i was pretty terrified <laughs> like i think um don't look initially, down. Yeah, yeah. It, it was initially panic um, just for the world. The people, you know, you, when life starts, you realize how small professional life really can be in the grand scheme of things. So for a sure. moment, it really was just a pause. And uh, once the pause is over and I was done playing Call of Duty, I just kind of realized, like, well, you know, we still have a business to build. And we had kind of, I, I really um, developed how I wanted to go to market with the expectation 
that the world would be normal. So when I realized there weren't going to be a ton of conferences anytime soon, really wasn't going to be able to stop by a ton of people's offices and expect them to be in office and kind of work the office, find people in the space and connect like-minded people that way. Really just started to kind of stick to what I knew. So I knew, especially even in Merrill Lynch's was probably, you know, I heard my old manager partner's voice in, in, in the back of my head. She was always get in front of people. You know, phones are cool. Zoom is cool. There's nothing like asking questions in front of people. You can see how they live, the type of colognes they like, the type of clothes they like. It's just, it's, there's no substitute for it. So that's what we did. You know, we went out, we reached out a ton. People were home and that's cold calls are a little bit more successful than usual. Cold emails were a little bit more successful than, than usual. And people after we knew that it could be a safe way to approach in person, people were open to doing it. Um, so then from there, just how, how it helped us really though, is because healthcare is one of our sectors where we, we grinded our teeth, there was so many more eyes on the healthcare sector where it comes to developing technology. So there was people that have always made an asset class and they were doing more deals. And then there were people that have never looked at healthcare as an asset class, especially on the private side who wanted that exposure. So we, you know, that's just, you know, my parents call it favor, you know, a blessing or some luck that really worked out for us. So we were able to hit the ground running with some early healthcare deals just because there was so much more money looking to get in the market. Um, so that's kind of how COVID was for us. And then I just, it gave us a lot of time to strategically kind of build, think about how we wanted to build out everything and uh, continue to move the ball forward. So all in all, I think we made out pretty well. All the things considering, you know, still obviously some some struggles, but the main thing I think for us was just getting over the hump and the fear of it all and just kind of approaching it a day at a time. Yeah, I'm always impressed by just the gumption of, you know, going for it and taking that leap with the expectation that the parachute's going to open at some point, at some point. After, you, after you've jumped. And it's so exciting and fun to, to hear those stories. Just switching gears briefly, I, you know, one of the things that I, just observed and just researching for this call was a statement on the Solomon Gideon website that really resonated with me. And it says that Soji Capital was founded, quote, because for far too long, the benefits of Wall Street have only been available to a select percentage of the population. We aim to provide equal access to private markets for all qualified parties. I'd love to hear more about kind of what what informed that tenant that, that you're sharing uh, on your website because it it resonates very closely to what you know finalis's aspirations are around really democratizing access to the private capital markets by empowering folks like you to plug in to a broader ecosystem and to have the type of leverage value that you might only previously have enjoyed at a large bulge bracket or boutique and so would just love to hear your perspective on what is informing that ethos for you. Definitely. Everybody kind of, I guess, has their shtick on things they complain about just with society in general, probably whenever they go out. So I have My no thing... idea what you're talking about. <laughs> so, so, nothing wrong with society. Nothing <laughs> at all, right? And when I try to find things to complain about, access is typically the thing I complain about. If I go out to eat in New York and say I spend 200 bucks the first thing I think about was how many minimum wage hours it had to be worked for a typical for a working class gentleman or a working class lady to afford a similar kind of dinner, essentially in a whole day's work for an hour dinner. And that, that's people that are essential to how we live. 
if I would go to the movie theater, it's almost a hundred bucks. If I get popcorn, two tickets, <laughs> you know, and parking. So you're telling me I, if somebody worked for jobs for us to do our jobs, we're going to make them pay a whole day's labor to, to experience them. And I think about high school, I didn't go to a, a private school. Um, I went to a, a public school and there wasn't a ton of conversations about investment banking, finance, the, the markets overall. Um, but I think about the talent in that school. There's a ton of people that could have been successful or could still be successful in finance if there were the opportunities or they had the access to learn about different lanes and different ways to apply their talents. Yeah. But they just want their con- those conversations. You know, that's what I complain about the most. And it's no different in finance. So growing up, didn't meet any investment bankers as a kid, didn't meet them in high school, in college. I read about a couple. Um, so ultimately, I had to take a longer route to get to where I am just to understand the business and kind of find out where my talents lay. I would have been a lot more served if these conversations were introduced to me earlier. And it's no fault of the community at large. I think I grew up in a great atmosphere and an environment. I think it's more so how our businesses ran. It's very relationship-based, clubhouse kind of thing. We hire people we know, and then the kids of those people we know. So we didn't those people <laughs> we didn't know those people growing up. And um, there's a lot of people that could benefit from an investment banking partner as a as an investor or a founder that just might not have those same connections early on, especially if they didn't go to the, the schools we know or grew up in a family of founders and were connected to capital. So how many innovations are stifled yearly? Not competency, not work ethic, not drive, not the right relationships. And how many investors have to participate and find opportunities on their own that ultimately don't serve them well because they have to go out and do due diligence? This is a full-time job. You know, we're 14 hours a day. Can you imagine working all day, having a family, and then having to find your own private investment? I just wouldn't participate. And that ultimately leads to a startup ecosystem that is very hard to break into. So when I started the firm, that's one of the principles that we wanted to focus or I wanted to focus. And I think the people we that joined us feel similarly is that if somebody has a talent to be an investment banker, they should have the opportunity to be. And I don't think that's like radical. If there's a really smart founder that has innovation that can help people, they should have the opportunity to find that capital. And if there's an innovation innovator or an investor that wants to participate in funding these type of startups, they should have an avenue to do it. And um, we play like really small piece in all of that to just connecting the parties and being open to not the same names that we know we can do business with. So we give everybody a fifth, anybody can get 15 minutes from, you know, on the calendar, regardless of wherever the background is from. If they're interested in being a banker, if they want to learn how to, uh, if they have questions about their startup or if they're looking for opportunities. So I just think we have to be really intentional when we want to expand our ecosystem of professionals and finance. And it's going to have to come to a point because wealth looks different than it did 50 years ago. We just can't run our businesses the same and still be successful. But we have to just have to be more intentional about um, being open. So I know that was long-winded, but that's kind of like no, my, my, my thing. To me, it hits me on many levels because a core tenant, as I was mentioning, of Finalis is around democratizing access to the private capital markets. And that access happens on many levels, right? It's about uh, making it easier for private capital providers to find interesting and exciting opportunities to invest in. But one of the things that we recognized early on was that a really exciting way to deliver that democratization was if we we made it easier for somebody in your shoes to plug in. And that has ultimately become a key element of the finalist strategy in the service of achieving this 
lofty goal because people can say, you know, democratization, what does that actually mean, right? What it fundamentally means is that the private capital markets, which used to be really just available to the select few, should be easier to access, whether you're a company owner or business owner, whether you're an investor or whether you're an intermediary, and that there's opportunities in unlocking that democratization through the investment banker who comes to the table with relationships from their communities, from their industries, and also perhaps a more fine-tuned approach that speaks the language of, of the clients that they're serving and, and mm-hmm. the investors that, or acquires that they're ultimately bringing to the table because this is such a relationship-driven industry. I want to switch gears and just ask you about relationships and specifically about the Finalis marketplace and how that marketplace has supported or augmented Solomon Gideon's approach to sourcing deal flow or syndication opportunities. You've been very active, Sam, on the marketplace. I think you've got more than a dozen interactions or so playing out as we speak. And I really just wanted to hear your perspective on how the Finalis marketplace has impacted your deal flow overall. For sure. And that's a really good point. So I think that's one thing we've done really well is learn how to leverage the platform and collaborate with other banks. So as a small group, when we want to punch above our weight, we have to get creative. And the main thing we've done is syndicate our deals out. Uh, so we have one deal we're really excited about. It's Health Tech, uh, Mike Luminous Holdings, shameless plug. Uh, but uh, they have a really neat innovation. And we wanted to make sure that we got them in front of as many people as possible. So we've actually syndicated that deal out to two other banks. Um, the Laferla Brothers, they've been tremendous. And we haven't really had any bad collaborations on the platform. Um, when we talk about syndicating or we talk about, you know, proprietary deal flow, you know, we get a lot of interest in opportunities. You know, we have a basically an investment board and they help tremendously with deal flow, but a lot of kind of how you spoke to, we're usually really focused on the sectors we, uh, we participate in, but um, there's some opportunities sometimes we get that are just too, too good to say no to. So we think about how we can take that to market. And a lot of it has been leveraging other banks on the platform. One deal in particular we're really excited about that we had early collaboration with is an opportunity in the Indian Premier League. So it's be our first sports deal. And we just actually submitted a bit over the weekend. So fingers crossed that is it, everything goes well. The part of the due diligence, even though we brought the deal on, we couldn't have done it our, ourselves because so much of it was out of our wheelhouse. Right. We leverage other people on the platform. So that's kind of been one of our <laughs> little bit of secret weapons is just knowing that... Uh, once we get a deal in, we can find other parties that will participate. Now we've kind of got a system of, of banks that, you know, or bankers that we know we like to work with, kind of know the sector they'll be great at. We almost know their timeline. I know if I don't submit a document 24 hours, I know Justin's going to give me a call just because I'm familiar with how he works and I appreciate it. Um, so that's one thing the Finalis and you as a, as a partner has been just tremendous for us. So I'm really excited. And it doesn't make me feel good that, you know, my peers are starting to take notice of some of the work and how the deal flows improve as we've grown the business. So that's one thing I'm excited about and still looking forward to. No, excited to the the continued usage of the marketplace and obviously, you know, all of the ways in which the Finalis network can de-risk revenue opportunities or, or surface new revenue opportunities that, you know, Solomon Gideon alone might not have been in a position to to benefit from. Just curious, uh, Sam, to just get your perspective, you know, three years in, the Solomon Gideon. And if you were to look back and reflect on what that journey has been like, I'm sure it's been full of zigs and zags and ups and downs. Um, but I'm sure in that there's also been a number of things that you've been particularly proud of and was wondering if you could share one or two 
either select transactions or things that occurred in the journey of, of building and scaling Solomon Gideon that, that you'd like to share? Yeah, from a transaction standpoint, I'm really confident this Indian Premier League deal will close. And it was so unique to us. Um, it came through one of our board members who you know I'm really close friends with. So it was a deal I really wanted to close. I can't get into a ton of detail just because it's pretty NDA'd up. But it was so far out of our wheelhouse. We even looked for banks outside of Finalis um, to help syndicate. And right. we reached out to some heavy hitters. And um, they all kind of told us, like, man, we would love to do the deal. The numbers are great. We love the management team. But we tried to do it in this league. And it, even though it's super popular, it's hard for us, based on our network, to get it done. So, you know, that was that was surprising to me. Because if I told you the names we reached out to, you would think, you know, no brainer. I mean, like, professional team right. owners in the, in the States, you didn't sure. and it didn't pencil so us persevering through that really uh, taking a step back being open and collaborative not only with other bankers but internally we, we came with some really neat strategies on how to approach it and to get it to this point where a, a bid's been submitted and it's uh one of the top two contenders and um a lot of it is you know outside of us but we did a really big part of getting it to this point it's, it's, it's fun for me so when that closes i'm gonna get a really big glass of ginger ale for that one to celebrate and uh that that's probably gonna be the most rewarding not because it's our biggest deal or anything but just because we had to go into it and who it's for i really love the clients um when i think about outside of transactions just kind of how we've been built i think i'm really happy about the team we put together I'm really happy about the relationships we formed with each other. I think that's what's making hiring so difficult because, you know, we have a really good thing going and you don't want to disturb it. So I just have to do a better job of doing things like this I we're facing to attract the right people to maintain the same kind of chemistry we have and culture we have. So that's something I'm super proud about. And I think, you know, that's uh, that's ultimately going to put us in a different position years from now because we have really, as we grow and we grow uh, organically, I think we're going to be, I think we're going to be in a really good spot. So that's what I'm most excited about since I've started, I think we've maintained our integrity even through a lot of, you know, turmoil and could have jumped the deals we knew we shouldn't have jumped at, but we maintained how we wanted to run our business. And I think uh, it's going to continue to bear fruit. So I'm going to stick to it until it doesn't work anymore. And I'll probably stick to it a little bit longer after that too. So I feel like we're in a good spot. So, so cool. And then just looking ahead, anything you want to plug in terms of Solomon Gideon's plans for in this year, 2023? Yeah. So, you know, I think uh, hiring and growing is going to be a big priority for me. When I talk about access, I haven't done a good enough job finding new people to bring into the firm that could benefit us from a way that we're probably not even be able to understand all the way just because of our, our viewpoints. So just being more open to getting the right people through the door and interviewing them. That's something that's big for me. I think our deal flow is going to continue to be really strong. I think not I think this will be the highest paid year for all of our people. So I want to make sure that partners all the way down to our associates, this is the most money they've ever made in a calendar year. So that's my, my number one goal. And um, we're just going to keep plugging along. That's the main thing you know. I, I'm uh, focused on, getting this back in front of people. I think the early stuff we did is uh, bearing fruit. So to get the opportunities that are going to last us the next couple of years, we have to start prospecting hard now. I think we'll win a lot of those the same way we won our old ones, getting in front of the people. You know, I think I look better in person, so I think we just stand a better chance of doing that if we're in front of people. And um, so that's that's us for 2023. Those are the things I really want to focus on, getting deals in, taking care of our people, and bringing more people to the fold. Very cool. And then just finally, it's hard to believe, Sam, but we're not too far from the one-year mark that, that we started working together. Yeah. Uh, time flies when you're having fun, I guess. Exactly. And I was just curious to hear your perspective on how this 
partnership has gone. For sure. So I, th- I think it spoke to the collaboration piece, how instrumental it's been for how we built our business, but also just on deals, having a partner where we could take so much of the early structuring off of our plates, having a, a almost a sounding board for things, how we want to approach deals, um, and just having a streamlined process on how we can get things in and out is has been a life saves. So I know how it is to have to take a deal start to finish on your own and uh, so much of your time is essentially not even focused on the deal. It's all the other moving pieces and parts logistically. So having a partner that can help with those logistics puts you and your team in such a better position to to focus on the client and the project. But there's enough collaboration with our, ourselves that we still get to control so much of the client process. So having a partner that just say, hey, we want to know how you work. Let's work this together and find a repeatable process. You know, it's, it's really unbeatable for somebody like me um, that wants control, but wants to be able to leverage some things off of it. Amazing. Well, I, I can say, you know, just on behalf of Finalis and the broader platform, it's been an absolute pleasure to get to call you a partner uh, and a friend, that. Sam. Yeah, uh, we're thrilled to have you on the Finalis platform and look forward to lots of continued growth in the days ahead. Likewise. And, and uh, it's been a pleasure as well. And I, I can't wait for some of the stuff we get to do in the future, man. I, I, we're going to look back on this and have a good laugh. I know it was a good thing coming. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us here on the Pencils Down podcast, Sam. Look forward to speaking to you sometime soon. Likewise. Cheers. Finalis is a broker-dealer platform with everything that M&A advisors, investment bankers, and placement agents need to succeed. We deliver a broker-in-a-box regulatory affiliation solution replete with tech-enabled compliance, research and analytics, deal lifecycle management tools, and a first-of-its-kind deal marketplace. Learn more at www.finalis.com. You've been listening to Pencils Down, a Finalis podcast. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show on your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us keep covering the latest in the private securities brokerage landscape. Thanks for listening. Until next time.